This morning we're going to take up a special focus in our service, and we will do this by looking at a few verses from James chapter 5. I'd like to read, even though we'll be focusing on verses 16 through 18, I'd like to read together verses 13 through 18. Let's read this together in unison. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to this text And sometimes we confess as we look at different texts of Scripture where life in the body of Christ is described or life in the body of Christ is commanded, we find here sometimes things that are new to us and maybe a bit awkward and even something that seems very far away. But Father, we ask that You would not Allow us to conform Your Word to our present day and culture, but that we as the church of Jesus Christ would be conformed to Your Word. And that the life of this church, this local church, would reflect what we see in the New Testament. Father, we need to be humbled before Your Word. We need to receive Your Word as it is in truth and to submit ourselves to Your divine authority, and as we read and obey, to trust You. Father, sometimes the things that we see and read, whether in the Gospel or in the life of the body, seem foolish from a human perspective. But when we see them and look at them through eyes of faith, Father, we see that Your divine power is at work through humanly foolish things. And in the end, They are expressions of infinite divine wisdom. And so, Father, we receive them as that this morning. Teach us to be your family. Teach us to be the church of the living God. And we thank thank you, Father, for sending Christ to buy us and make the way for us to be adopted by you and to be your sons and daughters. We pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ. We pray. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Well, let me give you, before we look at the verses that we're going to focus on today, let me give you a little bit of an introduction to the letter of James. We had a wonderful time together over the last several months working through the letter of James on Wednesday evenings, and we, we all came to this text and certainly were moved by it. This letter was written by James, it bears his name, and this is the James who is the younger brother of our Savior, Jesus. James begins this letter by calling himself a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
with great humility, he gives himself that title because he could have easily said, James, the brother of Jesus, and yet he says, I'm the slave of Jesus. And of course, he came to that position not during the preaching ministry of Christ. In fact, his brothers ridiculed him. But only after Christ was raised from the dead was James enlightened and became a faithful servant of his older brother. James wrote this letter to Jewish Christians who were scattered because they were being persecuted, hostily pursued by those in their communities. And so it's written to those who are scattered abroad. He wrote this letter to them during this great time of persecution because he longed for them to endure this great testing of their faith. He wanted them to see their faith proven genuine. He wanted them to see that whether or not they had, through this trial, saving, genuine, living faith, and then if they did, to have their faith purified and matured, made whole through the fire of affliction. And so to help these precious saints prove the genuineness of their faith and remain devoted to Christ and come forth as gold, James gives them through this letter several tests by which to evaluate their faith. He begins by giving them a picture of the test of trials and then the test of their response to the Word, the test of true religion. And he moves into chapter 2 and he gives them the, the test of partiality and the test of good works. In chapter 3, the test of the tongue, the test of relational wisdom. Chapter 4, the test of conflict and slander and presumptuous planning. In chapter 5, the test of patient endurance for Christ's return. The test of telling the truth. The test of then turning to God. And then he brings it all to a final application. He says, as you look around in the body of Christ, pursue those who are wandering, whose faith may not be genuine. It's a masterfully written book, certainly inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so the focus of our study this morning, our text this morning, comes with the last test, which is the test of turning to God. And we could summarize the test like this. Living faith turns to God in every experience of life, including sin. And therefore, let us pray without ceasing. That's really the, the message of verses 13 to 18. And we can see that lived out in this text. Verse 13, for example, living faith turns to God when suffering. If you're suffering, what should you do? Pray. Living faith turns to God when it's cheerful. What should you do if you're cheerful? You turn to God and sing praise. If any is weak or sick, either spiritually or physically, again, you turn to God in prayer. And then, <clears throat> verses 16-18 through 18 show us that living faith turns to God when sinning. Living faith realizes that of God and to God and through God are all things. Whether seasons of suffering or seasons of cheer or seasons of weakness or seasons of struggle with sin, God is sovereign over all of that. From the deepest valleys to the highest mountains, turn to God in a fitting response. Living faith 
takes all of life from God's hands and then turns again to Him with trust or praise or pleading. This morning we're focusing only on the last response that we see in, described in verses 16-18. through 18. Living faith turns to God when sinning. So I'd like to summarize these verses, these three verses this way. Turn to God in prayer with your sin struggles and trust in His power to save. Turn to God through prayer with your sin struggles and trust in His power to save. question that we can come to as we look at these three verses together is how do we turn to God in prayer with sin struggles? How do I turn to God? How do we do this? How can I turn to God in prayer with my sin struggles? And you can see these four points in your outline this morning. Number one, letter James here calls us to pray with confession. To pray with confession. Verse 16, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. That's the first sentence that we need to draw our attention to. What is the exhortation that James gives regarding prayer? Here he says, Therefore, confess your sins. Do you know what the word confess means? It means to say the same thing as another. To agree with someone. To concede something. To admit something and declare oneself, in this case, guilty of what God has said we are guilty of. Confess your sins to one another. In this particular context, this word for confess is a little, is a little different. It has a prefix on the front of it. And it means that, that James is exhorting believers to confess from or out of the heart, to do so freely, even openly or publicly. It's changed from the typical word to confess. And as we look at the context, you can see that that's where James is going. There is to be a confession of sin, not just privately, but to one another. But what are we to openly or even publicly confess? And James says here clearly your sin, your sins. And he's, he's not just talking about sin in general, because then he would make it a, a singular word. Your sin, your sinfulness. But he's speaking about specifics. Confess your sins specifically. What is sin? It's to miss the mark, you know this, to err, to wander from the path of uprightness and honor, to, to do or go wrong, to wander from the law of God and to violate God's law. And, and what sins are appropriate to confess publicly then, or openly? Certainly any sin may be confessed publicly as long as it is confessed in a way that is wise and not spiritually harmful or tempting to the individuals involved, but here in this text, I don't think that's the focus. In, in this text, there is, there is a more specific kind of sin that's referred to. If we were to confess every one of all of our sins publicly, I have a feeling that we would be gathered together or at least with another brother or sister in Christ 
24-7. So what is James talking about here? He's talking about a sin of an individual believer that clings closely to that believer. For example, Hebrews 12.1, lay aside the weight and the sin that clings so closely, something that hinders the, the, the race of the Christian life. It drags you down. It keeps pulling you down and weighing you down. It's the sin that, that continues to catch you, like Galatians 1 or Galatians 6 and verse 1 talks about, brothers, if any man is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, humility, because you too could be tempted. It's the sin that keeps him entangled or snared, that practically speaking has become what we might call a life-controlling sin. Why do I think that? Why, why do I think that's what James is talking about? Because James describes the effects of this sin in the text as a sin that is so gripping on a believer's life that it spiritually exhausts him. In fact, it weakens him. Beats him down even to the point that it can affect him physically. Notice what the text says. If anyone among you is sick, so this is speaking again of, of a physical weakness or a spiritual weakness even. If it's describing the situation where someone, this word simply means weakness, that if someone could be so overwhelmed by a trial, whether an affliction of physical health or a spiritual affliction, to where they are so spiritually weak, they can't even pray for themselves. And so they're to call the elders. This is, this is, what, this is the context of what James is talking about. And so in this case, what is called for is a confession of sin to other people. So it is a situation like this that James exhorts this brother or sister to openly confess their sin. Now, to whom is this brother or sister to confess his or her sin? Notice what the text says. To one another. Who is James talking to? Again, we know he's talking to the church, right? He's talking to brothers and sisters who are scattered because of Christian persecution. He's talking to the church. This is a this is a this is the context of this is the body of Christ. Other members of the body of Christ. This is a command that is to be uniquely exercised among the members of the body of Christ. Other believers only. You don't entrust this sort of intimacy to anyone in the community. This is, this is the family of God. One member confessing his or her sin openly, honestly, humbly to another member or other members of Christ's church. It's a family matter. This is only for the household of God. And this could happen appropriately in various ways. James doesn't tell us what the context in terms of number or group is. It could be one to one. It could be one to a small group. It could be one to close and trusted friends. It could be one even to the gathered body of Christ. The, the point is to confess your sin openly to one another when you have reached a place where you have been greatly weakened in a battle 
with temptation and sin. Depends on the particular situation and need. Now, I have two questions that need to be addressed at this point as we think about confessing our sin to one another. What gives us the spiritual freedom to do something like this? Do you feel that? Like, wow, that's... Someone might say, I could never tell others my sin struggles. Yes, I'm exhausted with it. I'm sick of it. I'm tired of this sin issue. It keeps getting its hooks in me. I want to be free from it, but, but they would know me in a way that would make things awkward. They would think differently about me. I know they would. And, and, and be condescending and condemning toward me. Whenever they would see me again, they would identify me with that sin. Can you think that through with me? We've probably all had thoughts like that. How would you answer someone with those struggles? And truly, the answer is the gospel. The body of Christ is a gospel community. The church of Jesus Christ is the only gathering of people in the world where the gospel and its powerful effects reign supreme. We can confess our sin openly because there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. This open confession is not a battle for forgiveness versus condemnation. This is a battle for freedom from the practice of certain sins, knowing that we are already righteous before God. God sees us all, if we are His, in Christ. God sees us as righteous in Christ. God already sees us as forgiven in Christ. He sees us as His loved ones, His sons, His daughters in Christ. God sees us as His workmanship in Christ. We're no longer identified by our sin, but only identified in our Savior. Therefore, that's how the family of God sees each other. That's how we're called to see each other. We see each other the way our Father sees us. We look at each other through the eyes of our Father, through Christ. And so we see each other as righteous as Christ is. If, we, if we're thinking spiritually, right? We see each other as already forgiven, as identified with Christ, as brothers and sisters loved. It's God's workmanship still in progress and we long together and work together by God's grace to be free even from the practice of sin, especially those sins that beset us. This is, this is to be a community that is rich with gospel mindset and therefore there is a freedom to talk about things that we struggle with. So together, standing in grace, we do radical things to amputate that which tempts us to sin. By God's grace, the body of Christ is a family that labors together for one another for in progress for holiness. And that's why we have freedom to confess our sins to one another. Makes all the difference in the world. This is... This is different, and here's really the other question that I want to, to, you to think about before we move on in this text. How is this confession, confess your sins to one another, how is this different from what is done in the Roman Catholic Church? 
I want you to think about that. I don't, want to con- I don't want to leave you confused by not saying something important here this morning. The confession that happens in the Roman Catholic Church is a confession of sin by a parishioner through a priest who is functioning as a mediator so that the priest who is thought to have more sway with heaven can ask Mary or Jesus or someone else, like a saint, to arrange for or grant forgiveness to the parishioner for their sin. Does that make sense? And that's infinitely different than what James is talking about here. What's the difference? Well, the Roman Catholic Church, the priest prays for forgiveness. James, this is not a prayer for forgiveness. In the body, we are already forgiven. This is a prayer for what? Healing. Spiritual healing from the grip of the practice of sin. We'll talk more about that later. The priest comes to prayer as if forgiveness of sin is contingent upon the confession. The child of God prays to the Father for healing because forgiveness has already been granted through Christ in full, past, present, future, sins, once and for all. I mean, Hebrews 9.26 says this, once and for all, forgiven. Hebrews 10, verse 10 and verse 14. Let me just read them to you. It's just one book back. Hebrews 10 is what I want to read to you. Verse 10 says, And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ once and for all. Sanctified once and for all through the offering of the body of Christ. And even more clearly, verse 14 For by a single offering, He has perfected for all times those who are being sanctified. What a magnificent phrase. Perfect. Perfected for all time. Why? The righteousness of Christ. The atonement of Christ is powerful and sufficient to forgive. The Roman Catholic Church prays and confesses through a priest, through Mary, or a saint, which is idolatry or blasphemy. And James prays, is commanding us to pray and confess through Christ alone, who is the only mediator between God and men. 1 Timothy 2, 5-6. through There's only one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And ultimately, the confessional prayers of the priests are repulsive to God because they blaspheme the sufficiency of the past saving works of Christ And they blaspheme the sufficiency of the efficacy of the present intercessory and mediatorial works of Christ. While the prayer that James exhorts us to is a sweet aroma before God's throne of grace through Christ alone. Can you see some of the differences then? It's important that we know that. Now, when a brother or sister confesses their sin to another brother or sister in Christ or a group of fellow believers or the gathered body, what are we to do? How are we to respond to that? Again, notice the text. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. We pray for one another. We come before the throne of grace praying for one another through our perfect mediator, Jesus Christ. 
We come to our Father in heaven because we know that no human effort or resource can give us what we need. Only He holds what we need. So we come to Him in prayer. We come to our Father aligning our desires with His for this brother or sister. We pour out our hearts before Him as the Psalms say. Sometimes the desperation and helplessness we feel in a situation like James has described drives us to the very thing we should have done first. And that's to go to the Lord in prayer. I think of the words of Matthew 7, 7 7-11. through Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, it will be opened. Everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds, and him who knocks it will be opened. It is God's desire already to work His will, which is in this text. And wouldn't it be His delight that we ask for it? So, by way of application, do we confess our besetting sins to one another like this? Do we pray for one another like this? Are we so mindful of Christ and fed up with our sin and trusting of His grace that we make this kind of response to our besetting sins a priority? Who are we? in relationship to these things. Who is our Christ? Who is He to us? What, is, what holds us back from such a faith-filled, radical, if you will, it's not really, response to besetting sins? So I exhort all of us from this day and forward to, make this, to take this command to heart and by God's grace, through faith, obey it when it is fitting. This is the way that God has designed to work in our lives when sin overwhelms us. So He calls us to trust Him. That's why I prayed what I did at the beginning. Sometimes these things sound foolish. They don't sound like they're going to work. But this is what God has said. And He's chosen to work in our lives in such a way that brings Him glory. Will we trust Him by faith like children? So let us turn to God through prayer with our sin struggles and trust in His power to save. All right, when we pray for one another like this, what should we pray for? Number two, this morning, pray with purpose. So pray with confession, number one. Two, pray with purpose. And you can see that in the last half of this sentence. You're praying that you may be healed. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. We pray that the Lord would grant healing to our overwhelmed, weakened brother or sister. What does that word mean, healed? It's a good word here because this is a word that Jesus often used. James, I would suspect, is thinking of the power of his brother at work in the world. Healed means cured, made whole. But it also can, be mean, it can also mean being freed from errors and sins to bring about salvation, deliverance, rescue. Sometimes this word is used in a physical sense. It is often used in the context of Jesus' earthly miracles. But it's also used in a spiritual sense. For example, Jesus uses this word to describe His longings for His people Israel when He came and spoke to them. He said, 
I want them to have eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to understand so that they would turn and I would what? Heal them. That's the same word. And clearly James is exhorting us to pray for spiritual healing from the infection of a particular sin in the life of a brother or sister in Christ that is weakening them. Now we must be clear about this. James is not saying that a true brother or believer can lose his or her salvation because of a difficult struggle with sin and therefore what is needed is a prayer for salvation to be restored. That's not this. The Bible knows nothing of lost and restored salvation. Once you have it, true salvation, you have it. It's God's work. You don't, you don't, you don't use your own effort to get it from God, nor does your effort cause you to keep it. It's God's work in you. You can search cover to cover, and there's absolutely nothing about losing and regaining salvation in the Scriptures. But what is clearly taught in the Scripture and what James is referring to is the struggle that a believer can experience in his or her fight against the practice of sin. When a sinner is truly saved by grace through faith in Christ and born again by the Holy Spirit, this is what they will experience. They will experience a different heart posture or a response or attitude toward their own sin. That is true of every believer. When you're born again, you begin to respond differently to your sin. You'll begin to hate that which you once loved. You'll begin to love that which you once hated. So every true believer born from above will begin to hate their own sin, and yet they'll struggle to avoid it, and they'll struggle to obey Christ. The very presence of the struggle is an indication that they have a new heart because now there's a war going on about sin within them. Just like Paul said, what I want to do, I am weak to do. And what I don't want to do, that's what I find myself doing. That's a war. That is a new war that happens in the life of a believer. And for various reasons, such as it could be neglect of the means of grace that God has provided to us, like the Word and prayer and preaching and singing and Lord's Supper and fellowship, it could be various reasons. Or maybe not those things. A believer can be gripped by a particular besetting sin and grow spiritually weak and sick, if you will. It's possible according to what James is describing. And it is in that place of weakness that James exhorts the struggling believer to confess his or her sin to other believers. And James exhorts God's people to pray with purpose. To pray for spiritual healing. It's like we're, we're to get down on our knees, as it were, and beg God to deliver our brother or sister from this particular sinful entanglement that has overwhelmed him or her. Forgiveness is already granted. Salvation is secure. And for that, we thank our Heavenly Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. But sometimes we need more than that in the moment. We need healing. We need deliverance. We need the affliction, deliverance from the affliction of temptation, the effects of sin. We want increasing freedom from the, from the practice of a particular sin, don't we sometimes? I want to be done with this. And so God has chosen by His sovereign grace to grant that healing through the prayers of His people. 
And just like Jeremy read this morning, Psalm 51, I had that as the example. What a fantastic prayer to pray for one another. It's all founded in the loving kindness of God. God, have mercy on me. Wash me. Do it would, David is, is speaking in that particular psalm so many times. He says, wash me, cleanse me, purify me. He's speaking of, of the process that it will require to deliver him from his particular sin struggle. So when a brother or sister in Christ who is struggling to be free of a sin comes to ask you for help, Will you remember the Spirit's instruction to you here in this text? When a brother or sister comes to you, will you turn to God in prayer for healing from the practice of that sin and its effects? Sometimes it's so easy for us just to to try to find all kinds of human solutions to sin and forget what God has chosen to work through. As believers, prayer in faith for healing from sin is truly the one response from which all of our other responses to our sin struggle should flow. So let us turn to God through prayer with our sin struggles and trust in His power to save. Now, thirdly this morning, as we pray for our sin-entangled brother or sister, why would we turn to God in prayer for healing? And the text is quite clear on this. Because of the power of God. Power is what we need. Strength. Divine ability to heal and free from this this entanglement. So number three, pray trusting in God's power. This is the last part of verse 16. It's another sentence. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Let's look carefully at this sentence and not miss anything if if God wills. What is the object of our faith here? Is it ourselves? Is it our prayer? Or is it the power of God? So many Christians talk about the power of prayer, don't we? We say things like, there is power in prayer. But in reality, our prayers have no inherent power, do they? It is our God to whom we pray who has and delivers all the power we need through His chosen means of prayer. And that's probably what most people mean anyway. But sometimes we just need to say it that way. There's not inherent power in prayer. There is power in God who delivers that, His power through prayer. So first, let's think of who, who is this righteous person that James is referring to? The prayer of a righteous person. Well, first, it is certainly a believer for two reasons. One, because every believer in Christ has been declared righteous, right? Legally righteous by grace through faith in the vicarious life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But secondly, because it is other believers who are to pray for the spiritual healing of this sin-snared brother or sister who has openly confessed their sin. Pray for one another. This is a believer atmosphere here. It is a believer who is that who, who at that place in his or her life is walking in spiritual maturity. 
I think that's what righteous refers to as well. Walking in spiritual maturity, not entangled and overwhelmed in a life of controlling spiritual debilitating struggles with sin. The reason I say that is because that's how Galatians describes it as well. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, same idea, you who are spiritual, you who are mature in the Lord, should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, but keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. This isn't, this isn't a call for, for any kind of arrogance. Right? This, is a, this is still a call to humility. If you have become spiritually mature by the grace of God, you should at the same time, and that's part of the spiritual maturity, you know that you could fall at any point, that you are a human just like anyone else. And so you come with that sort of humility. So in summary, the righteous person is a believer who is walking in spiritual maturity. And a subset of that could certainly be an elder because that's what James says earlier. The one who is weakened by even a struggle with sin is to call the elders of the church to pray over him. Now, as mature believers gather to pray for their sin-snared brother and sister, what should be expected? The prayer. The prayer. This is the word for prayer here is different than the word up here for prayer. This word for prayer is the word for supplication, pleading, petitioning, a faith-filled begging of God to work because you know that you have nothing and He has everything. See, this word up here is a general word for prayer that can include worship and praise and thanksgiving and intercession and any sort of petition for prayer, but this word here is unique. It is, it is coming to God like a beggar. Pleading with Him to work. This is, this is the same word that, that Paul takes up, for example, in Romans 10.1 when he is pleading with God to save his Jewish brothers. You remember the intensity of that text? Paul says, I, I would rather be damned and they saved Please, God. Or Philippians 1.19, when the Philippian church was praying that Paul's life would be spared. Or 1 Timothy 5.5, the same word is used with the prayers of a widow who is depending hourly and daily upon God to meet her needs. 1 Timothy 5.5. Or Jesus, Hebrews 5.7, this is the word used of Jesus when He when he made loud crying and tears as he was in agony in the garden. This isn't just a, you know, a prayer over the table. Thank you for this food. Amen. This is an intense prayer that comes from the heart of a beggar, but a heart that's filled with faith, knowing that God has everything we need. I love the illustration given in Luke chapter 11, 5 through 13, where a friend goes to another friend's house because he's had a guest come in the middle of the night and he has nothing to give him. 
So he goes to the friend and he pounds on his door in the middle of the night and the, the friend in the house keeps telling him, go away, we're asleep. And he keeps pounding and he keeps pounding until that other friend comes down and gives him what he asks for. And so upon that story, Jesus says, ask. Your Father loves to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. Ask. Asking with a beggar's heart is not a form of unbelief. Asking with a beggar's heart is faith because you realize you have nothing and God has everything. And it's not a manipulative prayer of God to God. Like Jesus talks about, you think by your many words you're going to get what you want. No, no, this is coming to God based on His will and promises already and saying, God, you've told me as your child you will give this. Please, I, I need you. This is the heart of a beggar. And so, James goes on to say that this prayer has great power as it is working. What does that mean? Has great power. It means it's strong. It's able to do and accomplish much. In fact, I love the comparison here. This is the same word used in Acts 19.20 where Luke describes the the advance of the Word of God to the ministry of Paul, and he says, the Word of God was overcoming and prevailing. That's the same idea. We need the power of God to come and overcome and prevail in the life of a sin-snared brother or sister. And that's what we expect. That's what we pray for. That's the purpose for which we pray, and that is what is to be expected. How can... Our puny prayers, our bumbling begging, have such power though? How how could it have such power to overcome and prevail over sin like that? And that's what the last phrase shows us. The prayer of the righteous person has great power as it is working. All right. I want you to get this point. It's just so important. Maybe the the most important point of of the text or or one of them. You've got to have your grammar caps on though. This word appears in the original form and it could be taken either in a middle voice or a passive voice. Alright, what does that mean? If it's a middle voice, then it would be translated as it is working, just as it is here. And then it refers to the spiritual energy of the righteous person that moves him to continue to pray until the petition is answered. So you envision a righteous person working, spiritually working out this prayer with great vigor and fervency. And God says that has great power. But... If it is a passive voice, then it may be translated as it is energized. So the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is energized. The prayer is energized. And so I believe the passage, the passive voice makes more sense here because then what you see here is that the prayer itself is enabled and empowered by God to accomplish the will of God. You see the difference? So in summary, God energizes His people through the Holy Spirit to pray for one another so that His will is powerfully performed in their lives through the instrument of prayer. And so, as you gather around a sin-snared person, this is what we should expect. 
You can't make this happen, but you walk into it by faith, expecting God to fulfill His Word. And that's certainly part of the application of Romans 8, 26-30. I want you to please draw the connection between Romans 8, 26-30 and James 5, 16-18. Listen, likewise the Spirit helps us in our what? Weakness. James talks about weakness. We don't even know what to pray for as we ought. Could spiritual weakness get you to the place where you don't even know what to pray for? Especially when it comes to a a struggle with sin? Of course. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. There is the enabling of the Spirit in our prayer. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And what is the Spirit after? What is God after through the prayer and, and through these times of confession? We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. What is that good? What is the purpose? Well, it's this. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Isn't that the whole point of praying this? That this brother or sister who is sin-snared would be conformed to the image of the Son. In order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He called. And those whom He called, He justified. And those whom He justified, He glorified. The prayers of mature believers, as James has described here, for their brother or sister in Christ who is sin-snared, accomplishes much to bring about spiritual healing because their prayers are enabled by the power of God. And God delights to enable their prayers and sends His power to overcome and prevail in the sin struggle because that is already His glorious will for every one of His precious people. Do you see how it all fits together? What shall we say then to these things? Right? We could go on. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Think of that. You're praying for one another as Christ is praying for you. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Nothing else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is nothing, not even a vicious struggle with sin that can separate us from the saving love of God toward us in Christ. And that's why God empowers the prayers of His people to be the instrument through which He grants spiritual healing to His sin-snared children. And then He gets all the glory. So let's pray, dear ones, like this. Let's pray with purpose. Let's pray trusting in God's power. Now, finally, this morning, as you're listening to this message, you may be thinking, I can't pray like that for another believer. I'm not that strong in my faith. I don't know if I can pray like that. To you, I say, welcome to the family. Number four, pray focusing on God's promises and power not your own weakness. 
pray focusing on God's promises and power, not your own weakness. Our sense of weakness and inability and frailty in this thing, our sense, you, as I talk about this whole, this, whole, this whole text here, don't you get a feeling like you're not in control of this thing? It's exactly the way we should feel. Like this is all in God's hands. And so that's exactly what James is addressing, our sense of weakness, inability, frailty. And that's why he's inspired to write this last two verses. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. And he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Think about this, dear ones. Who among us is sufficient in themselves to be useful to God in anything? None of us. Who in themselves could be an ambassador, is, you, is, is able to be an ambassador for Christ and compel others to be reconciled to God? How about an instrument in the hands of God for the shaping of the souls of children? In our home. How about, how about an instrument in the hands of God to graciously live with a spouse who is an unbeliever? Who in themselves can pray for the spiritual healing of a fellow believer from the effects of diabolical temptation and the snare of sin? Not one of us in ourselves, Right? But I think God, our being useful to God to accomplish His will is not dependent on our weaknesses. It's not on our strength even. It's all dependent on His power at work in us and through us. So then the focus of our prayers of faith in this context, and any odd context certainly, must be turned completely away from ourselves and placed upon God's power and God's promises to us. And that's why James refers to Elijah. He says, Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. You mean he wasn't a superhuman prophet dude? No. He was a man with a nature just like ours. He was no different than we are. He had the same human nature that we do with the same struggles and feelings and desires and experiences and weaknesses. And you could just read through the kings and find that out. Do you remember when Elijah was discouraged and self-pitying? And he said, God, I'm the only one around like this. Just kill me. Right? He was at bottom. And God ministered to him. Right? He was a man with a nature like ours, but... In this case, he said, James says, he, he prayed fervently. It it's really looks like a Hebrewism here. It says he prayed praying. That means he was really praying, right? He was pouring his heart out to God. He didn't hold back. He was pouring himself out to the Lord in prayer in spite of his humanness. He expressed his, expressed his prayer to God through fervency and urgency and intensity and desperation. In his human struggles and weaknesses, he became desperate for God to work. And so he prayed like a beggar, like the text says to. And look what happened. He prayed that it might not rain, and it did not rain for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, 
and the heavens gave rain. What, what is this about? Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 11? What is so important about Elijah's prayers here that we have to understand and that his focus was not on himself but on the power and promises of God? Deuteronomy 11 will give us the clue. Deuteronomy 11, Deuteronomy 11, verse 13 through 17. God is speaking to His people and He says, If you will indeed obey My commands that I command you today to love the Lord your God and to serve Him with all your heart and with all your soul, He will give the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the latter rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. And He will give grass in your fields for your livestock, and you shall eat and be full. Take care lest your heart be hardened, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and He will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain, and the land will yield no fruit, and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. Wow. Now we've got something to work with here. All right. So what was going on in Israel during the days of Elijah? They were worshiping and serving other gods, weren't they? And that was a big sin problem, wasn't it? That, that Israel was ensnared in? So God's people there and then were sin-snared. And did Elijah just go, hmm, what would get these people back to worshiping God? Let me think. I'll just ask God to stop rain for a while. Is that, is that what he did? No. God had already promised this. God had already clearly promised His people, if you will continue to faithfully worship and love Me, I'll meet your needs. I'll provide for you. But the moment you turn to false gods to manipulate this false god idol to get what you want, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to shut up the heavens so that you turn back to me. So Elijah knew that. He knew Deuteronomy. And you know what he did? He prayed that God would fulfill his promises in order to bring his people back to worshiping Him. Do you see the connection now? It's not that Elijah is some sort of superhuman prayer warrior. It's that Elijah knew the promises of God and the object of his faith in prayer was God's power and God's promises. And God answered according to His will. It was what God wanted already. Prayer of faith, dear ones. Don't let, don't let TBN rob you of a biblical knowledge of what the prayer of faith is. A prayer of faith is a prayer based entirely on what God has already promised to His people in His Word, asking God to fulfill His promises by His power in our lives for His glory. You cannot pray a prayer of faith 
unless you have the Word of God to base your faith on. And that is God's promises. And this is how we must seek to pray for our sin-snared brothers and sisters as well. We must learn to look away from our own weakness and place the eyes of our faith upon the power and promises of God toward His people. And then we pray in that faith and fervently and passionately like beggars if God will enable us. Expecting God to empower our prayers and asking God to fulfill His promises for His glory, for the spiritual healing of that brother or sister. Our faith and prayers alone are nothing. But if they're placed in the power and promises of God through Christ, then we know God's work to overcome sin in our lives will be real. 2 Corinthians 1, 20-22, for all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That's why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. Well, Paul's doing the same thing. And it's God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put His seal on us and given us His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Do you see how all this works together, dear ones? The Spirit within us leading us to love one another and pray for those who are sin-snared. The Spirit pointing us to the Father's promises toward us. The Spirit enabling us to pray with fervency. The Father granting His power through prayer to overcome sin. The Father saying yes in Christ to the petitions of our prayers. And all for His glory and our salvation. So there's really only one thing to be done. To turn to God in prayer with our sin struggles and trust in His power to save. As we conclude this morning, consider with me the points of application from this text. I give them to you by way of a question. If you are a sin-snared brother or sister in Christ, will you rest in the saving work of Christ for you? Will you humble yourself, confess your sin openly and appropriately so as not to create temptation for others, and ask your brothers and sisters in Christ to pray for you? Will you do that? Will you trust God's word here and act on it by faith? And you who are spiritually mature, will you rest in the saving work of Christ for your struggling brothers and sisters? We can't save anybody or rescue anybody. Pray the promises of God for them. Look away from your own weakness to the power of God. Will you trust God's word here and act on it by faith? Through the grace of Christ's Spirit and strength, let's respond to this text this morning with living faith.